0: The shift to all things digital may have accelerated during the pandemic, but if anyone thought the demand for data would return to some semblance of normality afterwards, they were sorely mistaken. Appetite for data centres continues to rise, with recent figures by market analysis firm Market Research Future suggesting compound annual growth of almost 10% through to the end of the decade. Similarly, fibre and towers are also both benefiting from the secular tailwinds. In this special episode, sponsored by Palastar Capital and Eurasio, we'll look at how digital infrastructure has adapted to the modern world and what more needs to be done to meet the needs of the next generation. I'm Jessica Nangle with Infrastructure Investor and this is Spotlight. Closing the investment gap is the immediate task for digital infrastructure managers, but each strategy differs. For
1: us, we're a small firm, and as a small firm, you know we need to decide where do we want to focus our investments on.
0: That's Omar Jaffrey, managing partner at Palastar Capital, an alternative asset manager focused on digital infrastructure.
1: Our remit to our LPs is we will find interesting investments for you. We're going to manage it, hopefully in a differentiated and better way, because we've been living through all the cycles. It's going to be more and more important for investors to have specialist teams. Small firms like mine need to specialize in sectors. And I think large firms need to have specialist teams that are uh, you know, equally as deep.
0: For Laurent Chatelain, managing partner at infrastructure fund manager Eurasio, A more expansive approach has its advantages.
2: Effectively, we have a broader investment strategy that looks beyond only digital, but also look at energy transition and transition to clean mobility, to circular economy, to industrial decarbonisation. And the way we approach digital is that uh, we see digital as a very integral piece to the energy transition. And that's where we can find effectively angles and situations where understanding digital becomes crucial when looking at the broader energy transition.
0: For digital infrastructure investors, the shift towards more flexible work and demand for fast internet has particularly caused a spike of interest in the -the fibre-to-the-home market.
1: Over the last few years, certainly during COVID, we realized that there are haves and have nots digitally. Even in New York City and in you know rural places, folks are unconnected in a proper way, which means they don't have hundred megabits types connectivity, going to gigabit type connectivity. So that's the opportunity set, but it's the land of incumbents, you know, large carriers and cable companies. This is where they have operated. And historical choices were made on where to upgrade networks and where to kind of not upgrade networks. And that resulted in this digital divide. And when you couple that with zero interest rates for many, many years, it then catalyzes a lot of aggressive investment as, you know, five different players look to a market and say, hey, there's this disconnect. There's an upgrade opportunity.
0: The fiber to the home market has built out rapidly in Western Europe in recent years. But overbuild can make or break the business case.
2: Overbuild is definitely the first key risk that you want to mitigate. And there are several ways to mitigate that. And in in Europe, and particularly in France, fibre to the home was supported by government and public policy. Not so much so in the form of subsidies, but in the form of providing a framework, concession framework, in order to avoid overbuild. I mean, we've been one of the first European manager to invest into fiber to the home back in 2015, at the time where it was pre-COVID, at the time where even the infra community thought it was high technology risk. It appears to us that it was not really a technology risk, but it was more a question of the business model and how do you ensure that you have take up on your network?
0: Chatelain adds that the concession scheme in France meant managers could share infrastructure and sell capacity to operators, which then resell and retail the connectivity to their subscriber base.
2: So at the end of the day, you are into a B2B market where you resell your capacity to the big incumbents and the alternative operators. And once you propose the fibre service compared to the copper servers at the same price because operators are providing them at about the same price, the choice become evident. Everybody will go to for fibre. And our investments have been even more so supported when Covid came. And when we exited, we made amazing multiples on those investments.
0: Each fibre-to-home market in Europe has evolved very differently over time, Chatland points out.
2: If you take Italy, very different from France, from Germany, The role of the telecom promoting copper and not letting alternative operators deploying fiber has been detrimental to the growth of the fiber space in Germany and in the UK. We've stayed away purposely from the UK and we've really focused on the frameworks where we saw that key risks were structured and addressed so that we could have a good line of sight on where we were having demand and where we were getting customers.
0: Jeffrey explains that it is all about timing.
1: So I think the entry point is really critical to understand. I think fiber is the most operatingly intense business. And what I mean by that is uh, if you have a piece of fiber, there's no real technological advantage for another piece of fiber as an example. So you have to have a phenomenal management team. You have to have an excellent go-to-market strategy, competitive dynamics. You have to subsidize equipment uh, ultimately to get to the house. You have to get that customer. So you gotta effectively buy a customer. And then you have to keep the customer and you have to control churn. To do that, you need salespeople, customer service, management. It's a lot of operating and human capital intensity. If churn's three percent, you're losing a third of your customers every year. Three years, you gotta reload your entire customer base. That's tough. So all of those operating complexities are what you need to underwrite if you're a new party.
0: Added to that are the challenges of existing market competition.
1: Keep in mind there's an incumbent, certainly in the United States, an incumbent telecom operator that's now looking to upgrade their plant if they haven't already done so, and incumbent cable operators that's looking to upgrade their plant and shift their business model. So navigating all that is critical.
2: No, I fully agree, Omar. Um, that's why we, you know, we stayed one step remote from retail, and we only looked at B two B, where basically you build out an infrastructure that is mutualized over a certain territory, and then you sell your capacity to the big incumbents and the big mobile operators that have this capacity to effectively market the service and retail the service. And what's interesting when you do that is then all of a sudden you're not exposed to churn because basically the client will continue using the fiber. At the end of the day, what you're looking at is the take up and the shift from copper access to fiber access.
0: Chatelain also points to the design of the market in France that has smoothed the path forward.
2: In France, the way how it's designed is effectively it is a B2B, so you can have long term visibility on the taker and you let those operators in the retail space doing what they know to do, which is retail service. And even more so, what's interesting is you see another trend in the space where those big operators are facing huge capex investments in the space of fiber, but also in the space of mobile radio transitioning to 5G. And what we've seen in Europe is that a number of operators have opened up their infrastructure, passive and active infrastructure, to infra funds coming into their infrastructure.
1: As Laurent points out, the capital needed to deliver broadband is enormous. And therefore, doing it right, partnering right, is just a massive opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I think the business opportunity that Laurent put out, which is build it, make it available as an open network, and then on the edges fill in. Really, really smart. There's a lot of ways to do this well. There's a lot of capital needed, and there's different forms of partnership. If you can do those, then I think you've got a real winning hand, but you've got to be very thoughtful about it.
0: The expansion of digital infrastructure isn't just about fibre to home. Over the past year, AI has grabbed plenty of headlines, and it's an important part of the growth trajectory story.
1: I'm an electrical engineer, computer science guy, but my knowledge is 35 years old. I just find it fascinating every time you think, you know, all the kind of really interesting, cool stuff's been done. Along comes another one that just blows your mind. When you, I don't know if you guys have tried uh, ChatGPT, you know, amazing what it can do. I would say AI. we I don't even think we're in the first inning. I think we're still in the uh, kind of you know batter's box, or uh, using a baseball analogy in AI and. It's got a long way to go. It's gonna impact everything, including what we do, what we do at work. I think certain things I read is 40% of us are gonna get impacted one way or the other by AI in our daily work. And you know, it's not negative, it's, it could be positive in productivity ways, but I think the impact's gonna be first on data centers,
2: second on fiber, third on wireless. I agree with what Omar is saying is, it's gonna profoundly change the way infrastructure is operated because you're transitioning from a world where you react to a fault to where you predict a fault will come and you take measures before the fault comes.
0: AI applications require high throughput and low latency to perform at their optimum level, Shatland says. In other words, applications need to be able to complete a large number of computational tasks with minimal delay.
2: What is very key here is latency. What AI is bringing to the infrastructure world is that you need to have very low latency if you want to benefit from interaction with AI. So you need to have computing power close to the user, and you need to be able to transport information very quickly. We're moving into a world where data allows to better utilize infrastructure. IoT, for example, smart meters smart meters allow you to monitor very closely a water network and see if there is leakage or not. And for that, you need to have data connection with your smart meter so that you can effectively, real-time monitor your, your network. So at the end of the day, all of that goes into one direction is more digital, more digital infra in the data space, in the fiber space, also at the very edge of the network. And second, what AI brings in the infrastructure space is that you will be more efficient running those infrastructure.
0: Increasing global connectivity means that digital infrastructure needs to be able to meet that need. Jaffrey believes that supply currently has yet to meet demand.
1: When you look at the network as it's built in the US, there's like four, five, six choke points. It's not as distributed as we think. I think one thing one has to do is to figure out how do you dismantle that and kind of make it actually more hubs versus six hubs in the U.S., more hubs across the world so you can actually connect
2: faster and safer.
0: Chatelain draws a comparison to expanding networks based on his previous training.
2: I was trained as a neurobiologist. I have a PhD in neurobiology. And you know, I was just thinking about how you know, data networks are evolving as the brain is evolving, creating connectivity and creating, and that's the fuel that we have today for effectively increasing connectivity, increasing storage. is very similar to what happens in the brain during the embryonic development. You, know, you need to have something that pulls for those things to be developed.
0: Jaffrey believes the problem is the current availability or lack of infrastructure.
2: You have to
1: think through the local, you got to think through the distribution, most importantly you got to think through power, is it even available? The pull through of the AI overlay is just going to be incredible. It's going to hit data centers first, in my opinion, and I think we're seeing that already. It's going to put enormous pressure on having new kinds of fiber connectivity. Uh, So I just see the impact and ripple through over the next decade to be enormous.
0: The shift from predictive AI to generative AI will also increase the power burden, as well as the need for energy efficient data centers, adds Jeffrey.
1: Generative AI is just exponentially more hungry for power, compute power, and distribution and data feed. And that's what we're just kind of scratching at. And the pull on generative AI, I don't know, 100 times, 1,000 times what we do currently.
0: Similarly, Rising demand for all things digital will add to the sector's already mounting carbon footprint without decisive, proactive action. As an Article 9 fund with a priority on sustainable investing, Chatelain explains what key steps Eurasio will take in its sustainability approach.
2: We will do a couple of things. First and foremost, effectively shift the energy intake from the, of the data centre from our to renewable so to enter into long term power purchase agreements so that data centers run only on renewable energy and second is the electricity usage and the water usage because you know data centers use a lot of water to cool the data center and what we look there is to reduce and recycle actually the water that is being used to cool down the data centers
0: This decarbonisation drive also means reusing the heat generated by data centres. Heat that would usually just be let go into the atmosphere is instead put back into heat networks and can be used to heat homes and swimming pools. While improving the energy efficiency of digital infrastructure is partly about decarbonisation, there is also an important economic angle.
2: The third thing that we look at is the power usage efficiency factor. So to make it simple, data center usually uses more electricity than it provides data services. So there's a metric where you compute how much electricity you need for one bit of data, and usually it's around 125 to 130 for efficient data centers. Legacy data center may be at 1.5, 1.7. The most best available technology data center may be at 1.5. 1.05, 1.1. So our data centers run around between 1.3 to 1.5, and we've embarked into investing into some features that will reduce this 1.5 to 1.4, 1.3. It will require some investments, but it will generate great financial returns because all of a sudden you use less electricity for the same service. So that has a direct impact on your EBITDA by increasing your EBITDA margin. So actually, not only you're more efficient in the way you operate your data center, but you are more efficient from a financial standpoint also. You have higher EBITDA margin. And for me, that's a great example that shows how having a disciplined, sustainable process allow you also to deliver financial performance for your investors
0: beyond just data centers towers and rooftops are other areas of digital infrastructure that are poised for greater decarbonization
1: so we've been exploring applications of uh, green energy on our wireless locations you know wireless towers and rooftops and so forth are not as uh, energy consuming as data centers are but nevertheless you know there's thousands and thousands of them there's millions of them around the world you know about 6 million or so points of presence In the US, it's powered by the grid and then there's a backup generator. And what we're thinking through is how do we put some solar panels, how do we put some wind turbines, how do we enable? And is there an economic reward for doing that?
0: Compounding the challenge is having to find available space.
1: We have sort of small pieces of land on which Tower sits. There may not be enough ability to do that. But having said that, we're in conversations with some firms that are developing, you know, smaller wind turbines and so forth. So also pushing in that direction. I think certainly in growth markets in Asia, you know, my original home country, Pakistan, parts of Africa, they still use you know, rural diesel generators to power towers and so forth because the grid isn't available. So you can see, you know, a lot of work that could get done there with solar and others.
0: Regardless of the various challenges that come with decarbonizing the asset class, the financial incentives remain.
1: You know, every 10% energy improvement has a massive impact on what you're going to pull from the grid and how much of a carbon footprint do you create. We're super conscious of these elements and whether what we're looking at is best in class or needs an uplift. As custodians uh, and fiduciaries of others' capital, our LPs are effectively demanding that of us. I think Europe's probably leading, from an LP perspective, the push to make sure, as investors, we're mindful of these types of issues in our investees.
0: That again was Omar Jaffrey of Palastar Capital and Laurent Chatelain of Eurasio. If you want to learn more about digital infrastructure, be sure to check out our latest digital report that covers the latest technological feats in the asset class, which can be found at infrastructureinvestor.com. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe, rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts or at any of PEI Group's various titles online. For Infrastructure Investor, I'm Jessica Nangle. Thanks for listening.